You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The censors and the, the record companies wouldn't let us get away with too much more, but it's uh, take the last train to Clarksville, see you in the morning, don't know if I'm ever coming home. It's a soldier going to Vietnam. Monkeys star Mickey Dolenz. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Fifty-five years ago this week, NBC Television introduced us to four young men who it turns out would change the way music and television interact. Here we come, walk down the street. Get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. Hoping to capitalize on the humongous and ongoing success of not just the Beatles, but many other groups, including Rolling Stones, the Animals, the Birds, you name it. NBC assembled a team of four talented young actors who also happen to have musical talent. Mike Nesmith, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, and of course, Mickey Dolenz, who years before had actually starred as a child actor in a short-lived series called Circus Boy. But after the show premiered, something strange happened. It wasn't clear, maybe purposely so, whether this was a TV show about musicians or musicians doing a TV show or something in between, as you're about to hear Mickey Dolenz himself explain, it was a strange and new kind of hybrid that actually frightened some people in the industry. They didn't quite know what was going on. The Monkees became a phenomenon, a short-lived phenomenon as it turns out, but a phenomenon nonetheless. You can hear their music today everywhere. So fast forward to 1993, and that's when Mickey Dolenz wrote a memoir of those crazy years of the late 60s. And that's when I had a chance to meet him and talk with him and just be totally entertained by him. So here now, from 1993... Mickey Dolenz. My name is Mickey Dolenz. My name is Mickey Dolenz. <laughs> My name is Mickey Dolenz. <laughs> and what is your line? I wrote a book called I'm a Believer. My life of monkeys, music, and madness. You, you explained at the beginning of the book why you didn't think you should write the book. Why did you, ultimately? Um... Well, after having made my disclaimer, um, it started becoming fun, and enough people convinced me that 
there was enough of a demand out there for some of my musings. And also, if the truth be known, I, I suddenly realized that it would be a good opportunity to put to rest some of the very nasty rumors that have been circulating over the years about the monkeys, um, i.e. and e.g. that we didn't play our instruments and we didn't sing and they had people backstage singing, which was a lot of beep, beep. <laughs> uh, and it pissed me off. And so I... <laughs> I decided to set the record straight on that. Um, but those rumors happen with any group that's really successful, don't they? Well, no, I mean, not, not the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. I don't remember ever hearing anything, anything about that. But the point, and actually you, you, you made a good point, the Monkees was not a group, and that's why it happened. The Monkees was a television show about a group. And to be honest, a lot of the music, musical intelligentsia at the time, or the hipwazee, as I call them, um, didn't get it. You know, it just simply went right over their heads. Um, it wasn't until Spinal Tap, 25 years later, that everybody went, oh, we can make fun of ourselves, you know, we can pretend. Um, but for some reason, the same people don't have a problem with Dennis Quaid uh, playing Jerry Lewis or Val Kimmer playing in motion pictures. Uh, it's, it's been an accepted uh, uh, technique. Whereas on television um, and in rock and roll, uh, I guess it... It wasn't. Um, <clears throat> but that's the truth of the matter. And I can understand why it was misleading to some, because we used our own names on the show, which is actually one of my only regrets, is that I, I used my own name. I should have used a character name. Mickey Dolan's playing the part of uh, Spunky or, you know, or Sharky <laughs> or Spiffy or Biffo. Um, that might have helped in later life. But, um, like I say, the monkeys started out as this television show about a group like Star Trek is about astronauts and comparing the monkeys to the Beatles say is like comparing William Shatner to Neil Armstrong they, they're both very valid in their own context but very different but I wonder if it would have been different if on casting day if instead of choosing guys who had musical talent if they had assembled Paul Peterson and Jay North and uh, well, they wouldn't actors. Have. No, you know. the, the, they wouldn't have. Um, the, they had clearly in mind what they wanted to do, and the casting, um, the casting sessions for the Monkees was much like a Broadway musical. They were uh, extensive and went right across the board. Um, Paul Peterson was up for the show and and uh, didn't d didn't get it probably because he didn't play an instrument or sing I don't know um, you'd have to ask uh, the producers that uh, Stephen Stills was up for the fo show the entire Love and Spoonful band at one point now the producers I think you know made wonderful choices <laughs> <laughs> no they uh, I think had clearly in mind what they were looking for which was personalities entertainers well-rounded entertainers that really jumped out of the screen at you and had a variety of talents because like I say it was like a Broadway audition we had to sing we had to act we had to improvise we had to do comedy we had to do drama we had to play an instrument I played the guitar actually uh, that was my instrument still is my instrument of choice I did Johnny Be Good for my uh, audition piece and because I think in the back of their mind, they wanted us to do as much of it as we possibly could. Uh, you know, they had backup systems, you know, to, in case we, we didn't or couldn't or whatever. So on comes this television show about a group like the Beatles and about all the millions of groups that were around at the time. But very shortly after that, life imitated art imitating life. Fantasy became reality. We did become this group in every sense of the word. We went out on the road. Our first concert... Uh, uh, date our first uh, uh, concert tour was uh, 200 dates uh, all over the uh, world. Jimi Hendrix was the opening act, and you know, fantasy became reality. Um, uh, I always equate it to Leonard Nimoy really becoming a Vulcan, 
That's the interesting story, I think, behind the monkeys. But you make the inter- an, an interesting and a very valid point in here was that this is a time before the media all mm. merged. Mm. I mean, the mm. record business was the record mm. business. Mm. Television was television, and yep. never the twain should meet. No. No, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion, like I say, it went right over these people's heads. They just, you know, it was just way out there. They didn't get it. My peers got it, people in the business. John Lennon was the first to actually make a comment. He was He's so bright. When asked about the monkey beetle comparisons, he said, I like the monkeys, I like the Marx Brothers. He was absolutely right. The monkeys was much more like the Marx Brothers than it was the Beatles, for instance. And um, as you say, it was... A hybrid, kind of a bastard child, you know, this strange clone, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> hybrid genetic. Which made a lot of jealousies. People, people did. were a little, a little <laughs> uncomfortable with the idea that these guys on the TV did. show had a number one record. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Very, very, uh, very clever of you to notice that, <laughs> because uh, it that that is what happened. The, the record industry was and still is a pretty closed shop. It's run by some very powerful people. And unless you go through them, you don't get a record. You know, you don't get a hit record, even to this day. And we've all heard about the scandals of payola and stuff like that in the record industry and the radio industry. But um, it, not, very, not, bad, not as bad today as it was uh, back in those days. And here come the monkeys out of left field, right, not having gone up through the ropes, not having uh, gone up to the chain of command, not having made all the payoffs. And suddenly, every Monday night, the television shows on the air, the radio stations had to play the music whether they liked it or not. The record stores had to stock the product whether they liked it or not. And it did. It, it pissed a lot of people off, I think. It made them, made them very jealous. But the proof is in the pudding. You know, it stood up over the years. The songs, you know, are indestructible, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think I had something to do with it, you know, the ones uh, that I sang and played on. Um, but... If the I, truth I went, be known, I think the, the the writing of the songs was so incredible. I mean, Carol King, Neil Diamond, Harry Nielsen, Paul Williams, David Gates, you know, Neil Sedaka. These people don't write a lot of duff tunes, and so it's hard to kind of screw them up. <laughs> yeah, this I, I you know I went uh, in search of the the the, the best of uh, CD. Mm. And it's not in the bargain bin. It's not in the the '60s mm-hmm. bin. It's not in the you know the, the along with the K-Tel collections. Mm-hmm. It's in with today's yeah. current stuff at the record store. It yes. still sells yeah. well. Yeah, that's the songs, you know, really for the most part. I think, and the television show uh, again, you know, it it's nice. Uh, it stands up over the years. So the, again, the producers were very clever. They they created this very actually a very straight domestic situation comedy. We were a family. We were we were my three sons without the father. Uh, you know, living in this house. Doing, in J.C. Oh, Penny activewear. In J.C. Penny. Oh, my God, I hated those clothes. Um, uh, living this uh, life, helping uh, the next-door neighbor who couldn't pay his rent, trying to get a job, you know, helping Davey uh, find a girlfriend, and uh, her uh, uncle was a, a crook, and the microfilm was in her shoe, you know, that kind of stuff. Very, actually, you know, Marx Brothers classic kind of situation comedy, you know, stuff. That's why I think, and written by great writers and directed by you know great directors. And Paul Mazursky wrote the pilot. The monkeys. Yeah. You do allude to the, you, you wonder at one point in the book if if you could have sustained that level of energy if it had gone on a third or fourth or fifth season. Do you think do you think the show would have changed? I think it would have just kept getting worse and worse uh, and, and more worn out and worn down. It was intense. Uh, uh, pressure uh, filming the show a lot of fun wonderful fun but most of it was improvised even from very early on we were we were trained we trained in improvisation they brought in uh 
a marvelous actor-director named James Frawley uh, from Second City with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And he trained us in improvisation. And it took me a while because I was used to acting with a script, performing out of a script. My motivation, you know. Um, and, what would Circus Boy do in this situation? <laughs> yes, right. Uh, but I quickly uh, I got into it. Mike was wonderful at it. He was just wonderful. I learned so much from him. Um, and they encouraged us to, to uh, be spontaneous and improvise. And it was held in control on, on the set, you know, uh, and very unusual at that time to have this, you know, combustive, self, self-combustive, self uh, uh, self-sustaining reaction going on. And they were kind of contain it like a fusion reaction and couldn't squeeze it too tight because you'd put it out. You couldn't let it go because it had melt down and go through the center of the earth. And it took an awful lot of energy on everybody's part. And because we were like doing a stand-up act 10 hours a day, it was really, it was very tough. After this short break, Mickey Dolenz reveals what made one of the monkey's guest stars totally lose control. Now back to my 1993 interview with Mickey Dolenz. Some of the guest stars had a little had trouble dealing with that, I gather. Yes, you read that bit, I think. Um, most of them actually did all right. Rosemarie was wonderful, and Jerry Colonna was great, and Stan Freeberg was, was great. But uh, there were some uh, actors uh, of a more traditional classic bent. The one I mentioned in the book is Hans Conried, a marvelous actor, uh, um, the late Hans Conried. Um, he, was, you know, I, he was such a great actor, great performer. But of the classic more of the classical, traditional um, school, shall we say. And he walked on the set, and here's the four of us, and we must have all been having a bad hair day. And we're just all going off the walls. I mean, you know, I remember it, you know, I don't know why, you know, you just, we might have, maybe because we hadn't slept for a week or something, or just come <laughs> off the road or whatever, and literally bouncing off the walls and tearing the set apart and turning the camera upside down and pouring water all over, and just, <laughs> and we tried to do this scene about ten times, and we would just keep going off into, into cloud cuckoo land uh, as, we had, as we were wont to do. And as I say, that producers had kind of created this like crazy environment. And Hans Conried finally said, I hate these effing kids! Get me out of here! <laughs> and uh, I always felt so bad about that after, you know, because I was such a fan of his. And, um, but it was kind of came with the territory. The producers had their hands full, you know, and, and now in later years when I've, uh, because my day job now is a producer-director myself of television, and I've had, you know, talent and actors and, and, and stuff in the same kind of situation. Boy, they had their hands full. You know, it's a credit to them that they managed to keep it going for as long as they did. You tell us that there was a, that the seed planted very early on, the seed of discontent that they grew. Uh, is that something that you recognized only now looking back on it with 20 plus years hindsight? You didn't mm. see that when it was happening? No, <clears throat> no, I didn't. Um, first of all, I was 20 years old. There's not a lot of, you know, it's not a a lot of wisdom and, and foresight at, at that age than anybody. But also because I had approached the project as an entertainer, uh, an actor slash singer, who was hired to play the part of Mickey the Monkey um, and learn to play the drums, because I didn't play the drums. They gave me about, I had about a year, nine months to a year to, to learn to play. And they said, and here's your writers. And I said, thank you very much. And where's wardrobe? And where's makeup? And here's your songs. This is the character. Here's your props. Here's your set. Here's your boom. And here's the music. And I was perfectly content with that. I had no problem. I It never occurred to me that it it, uh, it, you know, it was my Mickey music. This was 
the the character on Circus Boy, they uh, I remember we recorded a, a couple of tunes as Circus Boy, a theme song, and. I was, you know, I didn't. Uh, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have occurred to me any more than it would have occurred to uh, Val Kilmer to say, "I don't want to do "Light My Fire" or "I want to do it like a country tune" or "I want to do my own song." You know, it was just like that. I wouldn't have never even occurred to me uh, initially, very early on. But uh, uh, very soon, Mike, especially Mike and Peter, uh, started complaining, and you know, these other actors in, in the show with me and and. I couldn't help but notice, and I couldn't help but uh, obviously uh, sympathize, <clears throat> and it was confusing to me for a while because I couldn't figure out why they weren't just doing the same thing I was. But then I, you know, I started putting two and two together. I'd been in a rock group before, you know, and I'd written songs of my own, and it was very apparent that Mike and Peter had been brought into this thing with a very different point of view. They had <clears throat> been brought in and said, "It'll be your music. You're going to express yourself musically," because this was their strength was was the music. Um, whereas mine and Davies was more the acting, even though we all had these overlapping qualities. Um, and, I mean, if I would have recorded the kind of tunes I wanted to do, it would have been uh, the Stones and Animals and uh, Punk Rock and Dr. John. I mean, that's the stuff I was recording before the Monkees was screaming, I want that! You know, there's really my, you know, Chuck Berry and Little Richard and, and uh, you know, this screaming kind of bluesy rock and roll. But that wasn't what the Monkees was about. It was pop music. It was about Neil Diamond, uh, progressive bubblegum. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, and I was quite happy. You know, this is the kind of character you're playing. You know, and so it never occurred to me. But then, you know, I started realizing, whoa, there's something wrong, wrong here in River City. Something ain't right. And Mike and Peter basically, you know, said, "This is not what we, we were told. This isn't what we want. We want to do our songs. We want to do our music." The producers in the record company, of course, by that time were saying, hold it, you know, you guys are selling 8 billion records, you know. Um, why are you trying to rock the boat? And that wasn't the point. The point was it wasn't Mike wanted his songs and he wanted his style of music on, which at the time was very electro uh, kind of uh, country western psychedelic pop. Uh, which wasn't perceived to be extremely commercial. And Peter was into heavy folk rock and, you know, jazz rock and stuff, which, again, wasn't perceived to be very uh, commercial. Davey was doing Broadway. He liked doing that, and that was a little better, but not a lot. You know, I mean, they wanted pop music. Uh, they wanted the kind of music the Beatles were, had done originally and then had forsaken for Sgt. Pepper and for Magical Mystery Tour and because and the producers wanted... wanted uh, the audience to be the younger brothers and sisters of the Beatle fans, you know, and, and the kids that now wanted their own, you know, kind of... Well, it's I, ironic I your first <clears throat> album is on the charts the same time as Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. So right. the, so we were kind of going back to square one and doing, you know, light um, uh, pop music, and simple as that. So <clears throat> Mike and Peter got very, um, uh, especially Mike, you know, got very vehement about it, and we uh, all backed him, and we were all remained loyal, and and eventually, we gained total creative control of the uh, of the music. Uh, record sales plummeted, <laughs> but it didn't matter because we were doing it all ourselves. And I got into it too. And I, you know, I started writing songs. Mike was very encouraging, and it was wonderful. But it was, um, like I say, it, it was kind of the seed of, of discontent. The problem was is that music uh, is, is peculiar in that uh, groups always have a singularity of musical vision. They have to almost. Uh, it's usually one guy or girl who is driving the train creatively. 
sometimes is two, but that's the exception. Linda McCartney is an exception to the rule, usually. It's usually one guy, you know, that's the driving force, or one woman that's the driving force behind a band or uh, a career. In our case, there was four, you know, <laughs> and we were all vying for the position, you know, and and uh, it was crazy. It's just almost impossible to... to um, to control that and to and to get any sense out of it, you know, the monkeys it was four uh, solo artists basically. Uh, the uh, the album that we did called Headquarters was the real, real monkey album in the sense that it was the uh, 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 when we all pooled our energies and forces and focus and it was a wonderful experience. But it was you know fighting and screaming and and debating and music and this is, you know, but it's. Um, uh, uh, it was a marvelous experience. But after that, we decided we would go off and, and produce our own solo uh, records, as it were, um, and call it The Monkeys Project uh, under the same banner. And that eventually, you know, it didn't help. Peter uh, quit first because he wanted to kind of stay in this, live in the studio with, with, with us and, and, and sleep together and eat together and live together in the studio, a kind soul that he is. Um, but, of course, the show was canceled, you know, and that was really the thing that was the mechanism that was supporting the entire the entire project. Were you, were you prepared for that kind of loss, the, 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 the sudden plummet? Well, it isn't that sudden. It, you know, it took years, really, to wind down in a way it still is. I'm just writing a book. Um, <clears throat> I was more prepared than others because I had gone through it after Circus Boy. And after Circus Boy, I hadn't even noticed my parents very wisely took me out of the business entirely after Circus Boys, so I never went through those years of rejection that, that a lot of child stars go through, which will probably be the subject of my next book, um, Child Stars. And eyes and teeth, I think I'm going to call it. <laughs> <laughs> eyes and teeth, honey. Um, you could have been Fonzie, you said. Yeah, yeah, I was up for Fonzie after the monkeys. So, no, right after the monkeys, I was riding high. It was years of just li- resting on my laurels and kicking back and partying with, with you know, all, all the, all the uh, you know, people around L.A. in the late 60s, early 70s. So it wasn't a, a, a sudden crash. And I guess I was a little more prepared. I kind of knew intuitively what was going to happen. I went to a few interviews, and they said, what are you doing here? We don't need any drummers. <laughs> acting interviews and I thought oh jeez oh, oh, so that's the story it was a bit frustrating I must admit um, and then I got lucky I, I uh, got an opportunity to go to England and uh, develop my career as a director and a producer I'd started directing on the monkey show and I just jumped at the opportunity I really wasn't into entertaining anymore because at that time I'd been doing it 15 years and that was old. That's a career. So I was ready and willing and able to, to, to get on the production uh, uh, thing, uh, which kind of, like I say, is still kind of my day job. Did it surprise you how well you do at it? Well, no, not really, because, I again, I've been in the business so long, and so much of it is just, you know, comes through osmosis. You know, and I'm not the greatest director that ever lived by any by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know how to do it, and I do know how to get the job done. And I did very well in England. I did very well indeed. And um, that helped because I didn't go through those years, post-monkey years, or I didn't go through it so, so badly, the post-monkey years of not being able to do anything except being called a monkey. Because when I went to England, 
uh, was never mentioned after the first few months of my my career. There was the initial little you know buzz of Mickey Dolan's uh, Ex Monkey is directing, but I was behind the scenes. There was no press. There wasn't any any anything going on. I was just working my my buns off producing and directing television shows. I, I changed my name to Michael uh, uh, Dolan's actually for a variety of reasons. And that was it. And for 15 years, more or less, I, I never he- heard the word monkeys. And so that was fortunate. I didn't, uh, again, I didn't go through the, the, those, those terrible years of, you know, not being able to be thought of in any other capacity. Um, again, like Leonard Nimoy. I mean, he wrote a book about it. I am not no. Spock. And it's tough. It's, it's not just my problem. You know, uh, Christopher Reeve, you know, uh, Sean North. Connery, Jay <laughs> North, uh, George Reeves, the original, it was called That's the right. George Reeves syndrome for a while in Hollywood. They actually had a wow. name for it, and it's it's tough because it's this double-edged sword. You know, it's it's a paradoxical kind of irony that you create this inertia by the virtue of your own hard work and success that takes off without you. It's like this train that you you start and suddenly it's going, and you're going, wait for me. And you can never catch it or stop it. You just can't stop it. That's and not that last train to Yeah, that's last train to oblivion. Is it? I didn't know that was an anti-war song. Well, yeah, it is. It's pretty pretty uh, subtle because the censors and the, the record companies wouldn't let us get away with too much more. But it's uh, take the last train to Clarksville. I'll see you in the morning. Don't know if I'm ever coming home. And I don't know if I'm ever coming home. It's a soldier going to Vietnam, basically. I, I guess and I was I say, naive. I never associated it with that. Well, uh, it was subtle because, like I say, they, they wouldn't let us get away with more. We would have gotten away with more if we could have. Um, we all felt very strongly about the Vietnamese War and other things that were going on at the time. But the Monkees wasn't really the venue. You know, um, uh, it, it was, it, you know I had a girl uh, come up to me um, uh, the other day and uh, and say... You know, I was really going through some real changes back there in the 60s. Uh, I was flying. She said I was flying. I was working for an airline, and I was flying soldiers, ferrying soldiers back and forth or something, and it was pretty uh, terrible and horrific and uh, wrenching. She came back, and she said, and then I turned on your show, and I said, what the hell is this? And then suddenly she said, it made me laugh. It made me relax. It made me like, you know, same thing the Marx Brothers did during World War II, for instance, or the same thing, you know, Hollywood does during a, a, a depression or a, or a tragedy. They tend to like go the opposite way. And, and, and that's kind of what the monkeys was all about. It wasn't the venue for, for any big statements, but we managed to get in a few little digs here and a few little digs there whenever we could get it past the censors. And it was tough. They, they didn't want to know, you know, they were, they were pretty tough. Mickey Dolenz is 76 now, but he and Mike Nesmith, the two surviving members of the Monkees, are currently on what they're calling the last Monkees tour of the U.S. 40 states that runs now through November. And you can find easy Amazon links to Mickey Dolenz's book and the Monkees' music at our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and while you're there, be sure and check out my interview with another former teen pop star, David Cassidy. A lot of the, I guess, the misconception about David Cassidy was I was that sweet, innocent guy that was playing that character on The Partridge Family. And my interview with another 60s music icon, Sonny Bono. When I finished I Got You, Babe, I said, this is going to be a smash. There was no doubt in my mind. I had absolutely 100% certainty. 
And those are magical moments as far as songwriters is concerned. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, with Afghanistan on everybody's minds after the end of the 20-year war, we think back on all the many thousands of tragic stories that came out of that war, one of which was the death of NFL star-turned-Army Ranger Pat Tillman in 2004. It turned out he died by friendly fire, but the government tried to cover it up. So next time, you'll hear my 2008 interview with Pat Tillman's mother, Mary Tillman. Pat died in Afghanistan, but the Abu Ghraib prison scandal was breaking, Fallujah was in chaos, the president's approval rating was dismal. So I think that this grandiose story about Pat was meant to deflect. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.